This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Judith Brett. Judith is Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University. Judith joined me to reflect on over 40 years of writing about Australian politics. This is explored in a new book of her finest essays called Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life. Judith discusses what life is like as a public intellectual and thinker, the deterioration of the humanities at universities, and she also reflects on a range of political events and past Australian Prime Ministers across history. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with me, Amy Mullins. It's really lovely to be with you wherever you are listening from. I hope you're enjoying a Tuesday morning. It is uh, 10.32 and um, I'm really pleased that I'm joined now by Judith Brett, who is Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University. And we're going to be talking about a compilation of writing and writings, essays and pieces that Judith has produced across a number of years. She's been writing about Australian politics for over 40 years and um, still manages to keep her level head and to not, um, I guess, let it get to her, which can be quite difficult, uh, it seems, at this point in our political debate and um, discussions. I know I certainly am struggling in more recent years to handle the way that our politics is now being spoken about. But it is great to get this historical and reflective look back on how politics has been done, how it is done today. And uh, yeah, Judith provides a really interesting lens through which to do so. This compilation is called Doing Politics, Writing on Public Life, which has been released through text publishing. And uh, Judith is joining me right now via Skype. Hi there, Judith. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Amy. It's really great to have you back on the program. Uh, and I know that we've always enjoyed chatting and catching up and you've certainly written some really brilliant books across the years. Um, one of my favourites, The Enigmatic Mr Deacon from 2017, was a winner of the National Biography Award. And we also did speak about From Secret Ballot to Democracy Sausage, How Australia Got Compulsory Voting. So there is a lot of topics that you've spanned, um, not just in book form, but obviously in essay form and uh, from chapters in books and in speeches, which are published here in this brilliant compilation. And it is really quite helpful for me, I think, and for many others to use this book as a way to look back and reflect. And, you know, these pieces do stand the test of time, I think, and they certainly give us um, some insight into what's going on at the moment, just looking back at uh, even the Liberal Party and how they've evolved, which we will get to uh, in our conversation. But before we did that, you do talk about in this book your journey through academia and writing and becoming a public writer, a public thinker and an intellectual which, as you say, is not a given for academics. A lot of their work could end up and does end up being consumed by a really narrow group of people who similarly speak a language, a shared language um, in academia, depending on which discipline um, they're from, and sometimes a shared methodology. And so, you know, the public discussion perhaps doesn't necessarily get um, the benefit of this discourse, at least not from the horse's mouth, they might end up being 
um, you know, utilised or referenced by other public writers. So I wanted to ask about your particular journey and the fact that you say that you've been very lucky and fortunate in the way that you've developed as a writer um, and thinker in the public realm. So could you share with us that uh, journey and why you feel that you are so lucky and how it differs, your situation differs to those now coming through? Okay. Well, look, I started um, really writing for the public when I was editing Mianjin uh, during the 1980s. I'd had a job teaching as an academic um, in the early 1980s, but I left that and and got the job at Mianjin. And Mianjin, you know, it's a it's a highbrow journal, but it wasn't a specialist academic journal. It was very broad ranging in its literary, cultural, and political interests, and it addressed a, an engaged um, Australian public. And so that's that's in a way where I learnt to write. Um, because I was editing often articles by academics which had interesting things to say but were a bit jargon-laden or were a bit overqualified. One of the ticks, if you like, in a lot of academic writing is people um, covering their backs all the time, saying, you know, I'm not saying this and I'm not saying that and, yes, I know about this and I know about that, rather than just saying what it is they want to say and putting their evidence and arguments forward and letting the re- reader judge standing on their own two feet, not worrying so much about this host of potential critics. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, too, look, I I was, um, I suppose I came of political age in the early 1970s. I see myself as part of the sort of baby boomer Whitlam generation when there was a great sense of um, possibility about Australia and Australian citizenship. And I guess I wanted to write for my fellow citizens. And it's one thing to want to do it, but then you've got to learn how to do it. So I feel I learned how to do that during that time at Mianjin. Then I got a job at La Trobe as a lecturer in Australian politics in um, the late 1980s, when I was about halfway through writing the book, um, Robert Menzies' Forgotten People, which was my first book. And I was I started writing that when I wasn't didn't have a university job. I was just at home um, with small children, uh, and so I was wanting to write for an informed general public. And then, fortunately, I got a job and I could continue to do that. Now, that I was in politics, and uh, that book was successful and gave me a public profile, and that I guess gave me some protection from the demands to be writing lots and lots of journal articles. You know, I had a published book. It had been successful. It won prizes. But there was also a space in the universities, I think, in the 1980s and 1990s um, for people to develop that voice. I joined a department where Robert Mann was already writing for the public, where Dennis Altman, who was already an established public intellectual through his early work with gay liberation and he was continuing to be engaged. And that was something which the institution valued. What's happened, I think, over the, the last couple of decades is that although universities say they value public engagement, um, when it comes to getting a job or getting promotion, uh, it's the research points that you earn, and they're measured by articles in, in 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 scholarly journals and international scholarly journals are better than local ones, um, and books are not 
valued as highly in many ways as journal articles are. So there's a there's a, a career pressure on academics um, to narrow uh, their sense of audience to their professional discipline. The one um, discipline in Australia, I think, which has survived with and is still able to produce uh, younger writers who write for a general public is is history. So I would think there of people like Frank Bongiorno at the ANU and Claire Wright at La Trobe who do have strong public voices and have been able to do that while um, prospering in a university environment. But I think it's it's quite hard now. It's um it's more or it's riskier, I would say, for people yeah. in terms yeah. of their career. And it also seems that the way that public engagement is promoted or encouraged is about having, you know, maybe it's a social media account, a Twitter account, or whether it's writing short op-eds for the conversation or, you know, the university's uh, website. So there are these kind of new, more digital ways of engaging with the public, but they're also quite um, moderated and it's not really the same, is it? It's not going to be reaching the same people as, say, a book that's written for a general audience. And in the chapter, or I should say essay, um, that you share on the bureaucratisation of writing, you say that books are treated uneasily. Um, You also point out that in academia, it's one book per five journal articles in the sense of the points that you can gather um, in towards your academic progression. So, you know, these are things that clearly do weigh on people's minds um, and are a factor for very time poor academics who are already, you know, under the pump and feeling like they are perhaps in a precarious situation. So yes, I, th- yeah. I think that's right. It's, it's particularly weighs on, um, writers in the traditional humanities, um, history, people working with foreign language sources. I mean, I remember I've got a colleague, Jim Leibold, who works on Chinese politics, and he said, you know, that just working with foreign language sources in Mandarin, it, it's it's slow. Mm. He can't produce at the same rate as somebody, particularly working in, in theory. I mean, the, the people who work in theory are able to churn things out, I think, quite fast because they don't have to do the same slogging empirical research work that you do if you're doing, if, you, if you're working in, in history. Um, but I was going to say about the conversation, I think, you know, that's a valuable outlet. But the, the problem, I think, long-term for a lot of the social media types of engagement is they're very ephemeral. So, and they don't give, they give, you know, an op-ed piece. I wrote op-ed pieces for The Age during the 1990s. They're about 800 words. You really just needed one idea and mm. some anecdotes and a bit of a hook, you know, they, they, they have a sort of a formula. You had to have something to say. But you couldn't explore something in depth in the way you can I mean, in a, in a book. I mean, I, the, the the Alfred Deacon, the enigmatic Mr. Deacon, took me about four years. Um, now, I'm not working on that nine to five, five days a week because the nature of the work is such that I couldn't do that. And you need time, I think, in biographical work for your research to settle. Um, I, if, at, a, at a professorial level in a university, I would have been seen as, as, as research unproductive. That I, I, I did that four years after I'd left the trope. 
I'd already done some of the some of the groundwork, but the actual sort of starting at the beginning and, and writing it and, and deepening the research was about four years. Um, and I think, you know, that's, and that's the sort of time that many big books in history take. Absolutely, at very minimum sometimes. It, yeah, it depends yeah. on the topic. And it is really impressive that you manage that in four years because it is very in-depth and wide-reaching and, and really engaging. Um, it's certainly a book that I keep going back to. So I'm, Oh, that's nice. Thank yeah, you. I'm glad I have a copy. I always have to make sure I know where some of my best books are and that's one of them. Um, and one of the things that I also really loved when I read your piece, which is published here in the book uh, called The Bin Fire of the Human, Humanities, which was published uh, recently in the monthly, is about the way that universities have been undermined as well, not just at that um, production of knowledge level in a public intellectual sense, but also the way that uh, students are brought through their degrees, particularly their humanities degrees. And we have seen, and I know this would have been written in response to the changes to university fees and this mm. um, deliberate pushing people away from choosing the humanities as a, a an area that would develop their skills. And a lot of people, you know, bring up this idea of what job are you going to get? And that was certainly something that I had been told at high school and completely ignored. Um, thankfully, I did ignore that advice. But we, we do actually see that job outcomes for humanities students are actually really high and in some cases higher than other supposedly professionalised degrees. But I wanted to get your take on the humanities, given that you were teaching in the humanities for so long, and what you feel has been a, the benefit of learning or gaining skills from the humanities, because you studied politics and philosophy, um, but also then how things may have shifted away or, or less um, aligned to those areas that you benefited from. Well, look, I think the big benefits, when I look back on my um, undergraduate degree, were particularly from philosophy, where I was taught how to think, I think. I mean, I wasn't taught much knowledge about the world, but I was I was I learned how to construct an argument, um, how to think through the consequences of a position you're taking, um, and how how to structure large pieces of work. I mean, I think one of the things that humanities generally and the social sciences teaches is the structuring of information and argument over long periods. You know, the over, over long lengths. You know, to two thousand to four thousand to maybe the five thousand word essay. Um, it it really teaches you a higher form of literacy in many ways because it also teaches you how to read carefully, to think about what it is that the person you're reading is saying and what the consequences are of what they're saying, you know, to read critically. Now, I think that the problem with humanities and social sciences today is that students don't have enough time to really think hard. Like when I was an undergraduate, we did four-year courses um, and we had two three-week term breaks during the year. Uh, during which time we, ha we we did written work, or we did extra, or we or we did you know caught up in our reading. Whereas when the you know, the year was semesterized, 
six weeks were, in a sense, pulled out of the learning because mm. they became a, a semester break. They were a break and people went on holidays or went skiing or did something, you know, they didn't sit at home working on their essays. So that was six weeks less learning there. And yeah. also you didn't have time, you know, the, the 13 weeks or the 12-week semester, a lot was crammed into it. And you didn't really... It seemed to me it was much harder for students to absorb the amount of information or the or the ideas compared with the amount of time we had to to think things through and to absorb the ideas. So that was one sort of shrinking, if you like, that that I've seen since my undergraduate days. And the other that I saw when I started teaching at the Trobe in 1989, when the curriculum was very rich, we had four first year subjects. Um, and then we had a lot of area study subjects. I was teaching in a politics department. We had subjects on on politics of, 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 of Russia. We had um, Indonesia, China, India, uh, the United States, as well as substantial subjects on um, Australian politics and international relations. And as the curriculum has shrunk, those area study subjects have fallen away. We now only have two first-year subjects, um, Australian politics doesn't get anywhere near as much attention as it did. And the same, I think, could be said of all, you know, of history, of literature. There's just a lot fewer subjects on offer mm. and, and a lot less breadth. And part of the problem when we were talking about the research before is that in it, really the, the whole sort of research models have been driven by the way science works and science research and science publishing works where um, research where, where small lots and lots of articles are, are generated out of pieces of research and it's a quite different um, it's, it's just it's just a quite different model of how to work but that's been imposed on the humanities and humanities which really operates quite differently has had to conform to the way in which a bureaucratic institution wants to manage its research, and I think humanity's been a great loser. Um, and similarly, like in in the teaching of, of something like history or in politics, there's this idea that there are somehow these broad principles, and that you can the students can just apply, learn those, and then they'll be able to be grounded in the discipline. Whereas I feel as if you learn through the particular, that you learn about yeah, history yeah. and how history operates by actually, it doesn't really matter whether you're doing it on the Renaissance or, um, you know, early modern Britain and the fights over Parliament or the invasion of Australia or whatever, but it's it's the it's the absorption in the particular that, that actually you start to um, internalise the habits of mind. Um, and then the last thing I would say, which is, and I know through with COVID, Zoom became, um, you know, was a, was a lifeline. But the universities are very keen on online teaching and on the removal of warm, you know, human living bodies from the classroom. And I know when I look back on my my undergraduate degree, I feel as if I learnt a lot at an almost semi-conscious level from the lectures I went to where um, one much more experienced intellectual thinker modelled how to think for me week after week after week. Yeah. And because, because teaching is also a sort of an emotional 
you want some sort of transference to happen, if you like, from the teacher, from the students to the teacher. They want to identify at some level with the way that with with, with that person, you know, to not so much to please them, but to to internalize something about the way about the way they think and about the importance of thinking hard. And that's being all thrown away in the online teaching where it's as if it's about the conveying of information, as mm. if that's what is if that's what all teaching is about, when I don't think it is. No, it's the way that it comes across as this one way delivery of, as you say, information, whereas in a lecture it's a back and forth relationship and that you also remember, like I remember great lecturers and I remember what they say. I remember how they move across the stage. I remember that they spoke off the cuff. I can even see the slides in my mind up on the stage. I remember what lecture theatre it was. You know, there are all these kind of memory cues from embodying and experiencing a lecture. And it's funny you say that because even before the pandemic, there were universities here in Melbourne saying that they were going to try and move um, from in-person lectures to online lectures because so many students, you know, may not have made the in-person lecture um, and that was, you know, being used as an excuse to not really have in-person lectures anymore. I really hope that isn't the case because it just would be the biggest shame and and remove a major part of learning. And I, I just wanted to say I have to agree with you on on the particulars when you're saying it's about learning something in depth and then through that practice actually learning skills. I think that's what I see has been missing is that we don't have these in-depth subjects on one historical event or one philosopher. Um, now there are these very broadly, you know, thematic topics where you literally talk about a different country every week um, and a different conflict. And, you know, you don't get a chance to really engage in any depth with the, the for if, if it's a historian, you know, the historical um, theory and discussions on a particular topic. So for me, I agree. I think it's about the choice, but also about depth, which really seems to be missing. And unless you go on to do further postgraduate studies, you wouldn't really get a chance to indulge your interests in that really interesting level. Um, well, yeah, my, the, in the first year philosophy subject I did, we did Plato's Republic for the whole year, yeah. one book. Yeah. And we didn't read any secondary literature. <laughs> you know, we, our tutorials were discussing, we, you know, we would do philosophy, we would take mm. one of his philosophical questions and then try to tease it out, you know, what, what, what's the issue here? What are the different ways you could respond to it? Mm. You know, and that, and that I think, um, not just a lecture on Plato, these and, and a whole lot of dot points, you know. Yeah. Like it seems to me that the dot point PowerPoint is, I don't know. It it doesn't it it doesn't model reasoning in the yeah. way that a lecture did. Yeah, I do remember that. And well, I mean, I I'm showing my potential age here, but I even remember when there were projectors and um, the philosophy lecturer would write on things and put it up um, through the projector. Uh, you know, and to work out problems in front of us, with us, as they were talking and thinking about things. And even in tutorials, you know, having sizes of eight people in a class or, you know, 10 people maximum to have proper discussions, as you say, and to talk out issues and, you know, for one subject to just do nature and only do like three pieces by nature. 
um, you know, these are the things which you really don't get a chance to do in the same way anymore. And I feel like for those who don't know what they're missing out on, they probably aren't aware, but it is painful to watch um, when you know what was happening before. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad we, we've talked that out, <laughs> Judith, because um, it certainly is a major feature of this book in the writing section. Um, let's jump to politics for all of those very politically engaged people who listen to this show and love your work because there is a lot of politics in this book. Um, and what I really love is the sections, because you do have sections on um, different politicians and you're going into depth um, about them, but also bringing in some theory, also some textual analysis. Um, so I did want to ask about one of the chapters first, which was about John Howard and the Australian legend, uh, because it does kind of provoke ideas even today about the way that the Liberal Party is trying to engage different groups and to um, discard its elitist kind of image. And this is something that John Howard was seeking to do uh, with this idea of the Australian legend, which you talk about in that uh, chapter. And you also, you know, go into the theory behind the Australian legend. So I wonder if you could take us through that and why you think that John Howard was so creative and I guess so effective in what he was doing, even if the delivery was a little bit lacklustre. Well, look, I think um, the thing prior to Howard, the Liberal Party and in its origins was essentially a middle class party. Um, it had plenty, there were plenty of working class people who voted for it, but it eschewed the, the language of class, uh, but it it's the core of its support, if you like, its most stable support was in was in the professional and white collar middle class. Um, Labor was the party of the workers of the, of the and of the unionised workers, and the other difference is that Labor had always had a much stronger grip on Australian nationalism than the Liberal Party, which, if we think of somebody like Robert Menzies, was identified more with Britain and with the monarchy. Um, much of that that identification by the time Howard comes in, I mean Howard's still a monarchist, but. Um, there was a much stronger sense of Australian nationalism, particularly during the 1980s. Um, and what Howard did very cleverly, I think, was to take some of the symbols of Australian nationalism around mateship and um, practical practical mateship he would talk about, um, which had really been, like Labor had been the party of mates, um, it had been the party that grew out of the, the trade unions of the late 19th century uh, where um, the Australian legend, which was an idea of, of Russell Ward's, which was a sense that there was a particular sort of distinctive Australian male type who was a, a knockabout guy like Crocodile Dundee or something. I was teaching in Ireland around the turn of the century and I'd ask students, you know, what's an Australian like? And they'd say, oh, Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> now, that was a that, that was a bit of an exaggerated version, but, we, you know, that sort of informality of manners, a bit cheeky, uh, but, pract but practical and resourceful and independent. That had always been much more identified with the Labor Party and the Labor Party sort of trade union masculinity than it had been with the Liberals who were seen as you know, sort of clerks and um, 
lawyers and doctors and that sort of thing. Um, and Howard very skillfully uh, took, like Labor, after Whitlam, I mean, Labor was not, sorry, Whitlam was not a, you know, knockabout trade union sort of guy. Um, Hawke was. But when Hawke and Keating brought down the tariff walls, a lot of the old working class were very severely damaged by that. And they were a little bit adrift. And I think um, Howard saw that. He saw that Labor had to some extent loosened its symbolic grip on on the workers um, and that they were really, you know, up for grabs. And Howard went after much of the blue-collar vote, particularly the male blue-collar vote. Um, and so, and Howard's national, Howard also, when he was really positioning himself before that um, 1996 election when he defeated Keating, he was positioning himself as a sort of ordinary Australian and he 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 reached out for the sort of the the value the the images the imagery the rhetoric of the Australian legend and he did keep going on about practical mateship and the fair go and our informality of manners and he did that very successfully yeah, and also um, you say that he was calling Australia the greatest volunteer society in the world, which brings across, you know, those ideas of um, lifesavers who volunteer their time and, you know, the CFA, firefighter right. volunteers. You know, this is um, something that, yes, it is part of Australia, uh, but it seems that he was co-opting that into the Liberal Party's uh, conception of Australians and who they wanted to represent. Yes, well, the, look, the Liberal Party has, have always seen itself as the party of joiners, um, and it used to be, you know, like like Rotary and Lions and the CWA and that sort of thing. But and and how it, in a way, broadened that out to the more ordinary and the and the sort of blue collar volunteering, and also, you know, the workforce was changing. Um, trade union membership was was in decline, um, and so a lot of the sort and we also had the privatisation of a lot of the state-owned utilities, like in the, um, the, you know, the power companies, things like the SEC, in transport, uh, you know, the trains, the trams. They'd all been heavily unionised workforces there. Uh, once they're privatised, the union membership declines. There's more um, contracting out. There's a lot of, um, you know, the... The, the governments used to have big public works departments which built the schools and um, and built the hospitals. That's all now done by private contractors. So so the, so the, there's a decline in 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 the unionised manual workforce. The manual workforce, much of it is still there, but it's now more of them are self-employed. And so that also meant that, that they were more responsive to the sort of Liberals' Party's emphasis on small business and and the virtues of being self-employed, and so Howard, in a sense, threw a symbolic hook to to those guys and went after the so-called Howard Battlers, you know, and and the Ute men and the tradies, you know, who who he saw as now part of the small business constituency that the Liberal Party has always gone after or always drawn support from. 
Yes, and it seems like the tradie has almost become a bit of a deity in Australian political culture, which is a bit disturbing. Um, obviously, construction is has been, you know, a critical part of Australia's economy in recent years and the expansion of housing uh, in Australia. But it is really interesting to see that develop. And you do, I love this um, section from you. You say that, quote, Howard's opponents have been misled by his own description of himself as a social conservative and so missed his takeover of the symbolic repertoire of Australia's radical nationalist past to reconnect Australian liberalism with ordinary Australian experience. His critics, many of whom value skill with words, have been misled by his rhetorical dullness. And you say that his language is plain and repetitive, but that is kind of the genius of it because, as you say... He just kept saying the same things over and over and over and over, which has um, certainly been a ploy that the Liberal Party have used even in more recent times to a, a kind of more painful degree in terms of jobs and growth, jobs and growth, you know, <laughs> it's a tax. Uh, all of these kind of slogans that we now see, um, John Howard, I guess, wasn't necessarily a sloganeer, but he certainly was using similar, you know, repetition in order to, I guess, subconsciously drum this into the minds of the masses. Well, I, though I think, look, Howard was a much more creative um, political rhetorician, if you like, than the people who, you know, the prime ministers we've had since then, Abbott, Turnbull or Morrison. You know, he did actually yeah. have something new to say in terms of Liberal Party rhetoric um, because before him we've got Fraser and Fraser has a very patrician, he was very patrician in the way in which he talked to people. He, it, it was almost as he always sounded as if he was talking down to the to the to the population or to the electorate, which Howard never did. And also Howard is contrasting himself with Keating at that point. And Keating had this cosmopolitan aura about him. He was not, even though you know he came had he had working class roots, he didn't come across as necessarily sympathetic to working class life in the way that Howard was able to do or, or when I say working class I probably mean just sort of ordinary suburban life yeah um, I, so I think you know that it's in the it's in the suburbs how Keating was much more sort of urbane than Howard and he was much more skillful with words you know he was witty and clever and he didn't repeat himself and um, because the other thing that is happening as Howard is going after, suburban Australia is the much of the professional middle class and the um, the more highly educated part of the electorate who were once the natural home of the Liberal Party had gone over to the Labor Party. Mm. You know, so there's a sort of a swapping of a couple of class, a couple of segments, if you like, um, of the population. Yeah, and there's certainly been concern amongst Labor from, you know, the early thousands, potentially earlier than that, about, you know, a declining primary vote overall, but also losing voters to parties like the Greens, who are certainly taking up some of their um, capacity at the moment. And definitely among topics like asylum seekers, climate change, um, our First Nations peoples, these are all areas that uh, Labor has not necessarily been in 
the strongest on in recent years. Um, although that said, and this is what I, where I wanted to bring in Kevin Rudd, um, you bring in Kevin Rudd, um, not just around, you know, rhetoric and uh, delivery of, of politics and strategy, but also around substance in terms of the policies that he um, was putting forward that were clearly in stark contrast in some regards to John Howard, particularly in the climate change domain. Yes. And that is something that we really, you know, are still grappling with now and um, have has really brought down pretty much every prime minister in some form. So I wanted to ask about Kevin Rudd um, and Julia Gillard, because clearly their prime ministerships are quite inextricably linked in uh, many ways. You talk about this idea of transformational leadership um, and also transactional and the way that Australians respond to these forms of leadership and when they seek out transformational leadership. And you highlight Kevin Rudd as this moment where Australians were looking for something more, a charismatic yeah. leader. So I wanted to to dwell on that a little bit because he does seem to have been um, in some ways a bit of an aberration compared to all of the other very transactional leaders we've been having since. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, Kevin Rudd did offer um, a moment of change, um, particularly, you know, with the apology to the stolen generations and with the dramatic recognition of, of the threat that climate change poses to us all. And after, you know, quite a long period of Howard and Howard was tired um, and and getting, you know, dull and, and, and losing his grip in some ways. The problem was that, that Rudd wasn't actually an experienced enough parliamentarian to manage the um, the tasks, the, the really complicated tasks of being Prime Minister. So I don't think there was anything particularly amiss with what he was offering Australians. It's just that he wasn't able psychologically and emotionally to handle the job. Um, and, and, and then I think it was a disastrous decision of Labor to go after him in the way they did. Um, you know, it's it may be he was buckling under pressure. Yes, he was clearly very difficult to work with, but there should have been ways of, of, of managing that. Yeah. In, um, and I think it was uh, a disastrous decision of Julia Gillard's. I think she could have been a truly great Prime Minister. She clearly had good... Um, she was a good parliamentarian. She had good um, policy skills. She was good at getting things done. Um, but the way she came to office by deposing a male leader unleashed this terrible misogyny uh, that I think sort of overwhelmed her prime ministership in some way and must have been enormously psychologically difficult to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. I used yeah. to think, I don't know how she gets up in the morning to face to face this all again, you know. Um, but And the, the um, carbon price scheme, you know, legislation that, that she passed was a major achievement and it should have stayed as being a major achievement of, of Australian political life. And if we if it had stayed in place, we would be having a much easier national conversation now than we're having. But Tony Abbott's 
ambition and misogyny and the climate denialism that had taken hold of the um, of, of the coalition just, in a sense, overwhelmed her, uh, you know, her from the, the electoral point of view. And I, I think, um, I don't think she would have been transformational in the way that Rudd could have been because she didn't, she didn't, um, she didn't have the sort of rhetorical skills. You know, I didn't think yeah. she was ever a particularly good public speaker, but I think she would have been a very effective prime minister um, if she had a come to power a little later, I guess, yeah. and in different circumstances. I mean, I think when you read back, you know, the misogyny of that period, it's truly shocking. Oh, absolutely. And um, and absurd. Like, it is kind of ridiculous in some of the things that were written and said on, a, as you said, a daily basis. Um, and it's interesting to, to reflect back on Kevin Rudd and before that, uh, change of leadership because it is clearly not the first time a prime minister has been deposed, but he was a very popular prime minister. And although his popularity was declining, and I guess his image had been tainted a little bit by the resource rent tax that uh, came out of the blue, um, they hadn't, they still actually were polling really well. Um, it was a big shock to a lot of people that it just happened pretty much overnight. Um, that it was also, I guess, coordinated by some very inexperienced um, new politicians like Bill Shorten and others who kind of led that. Um, and it also is interesting to think of what you've kind of intimated there, which is that Kevin Rudd clearly wouldn't have been the first prime minister who might have been a bit difficult to work with, which is not to excuse anyone throughout the whole history of Australian politics, but just to say that, as you point out in the book, there are certain people who get into politics and some of their strengths are actually um, can be seen in as weaknesses in other senses, depending on the context that they're operating in. So I guess I was really interested in that complexity and the fact that, as you said, Julia Gillard's whole prime ministership was really affected by that one moment in time. And if she'd waited a little bit longer it would have been her term time. She was deputy prime minister. She'd been a very respected education minister. Um, you know, she had impressed a lot of people. So I don't think there would be any doubt that, you know, she's kind of waiting in the wings like Peter Costello was and would have had a lot more success than him. Yes, I think that's right. And the other thing I was going to say something about is Labor's relationship with the Greens. The, mm. the vote that goes to the Greens comes back to Labor in preferences. So, um, I think the loss to Labor of the Greens has been a lot in terms of political activists. A lot of the the more progressive, um, more progressive young people, for example, are drawn to joining the Greens rather than the Labor Party. But in terms of votes, they go back. And I still feel that what Labor is going to need to do at some point is come to some sort of fairly stable working alliance with the Greens. Um, in the way that the Liberals have with the National Party. Now, to some extent that, you know, if, Labor, if the Greens start to be able to win more seats, that will become a necessity for Labor. And what we have to see, you know, we, the coalition agreement has, has in a sense become so naturalised that people don't see that actually, you know, the Liberal Party is in a minority government and it forms a coalition yep. with, the, with the Nationals. Uh, so it wouldn't be such a bad thing, you know. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't. When I say such, it wouldn't be an aberration for Labor to do something similar on the left side of politics. Um, 
So you it know, certainly wouldn't be an aberration, even in you know European politics. It's very common to have these right. progressive, left-leaning coalitions. Exactly, and even at the last election, when you actually count the number of votes for the the lower house, yes, Labor's primary vote is down, but Labor plus the Greens, more people voted for them than voted for the coalition. It's just that the way they're spread across the seats didn't deliver the same number of seats. But, you know, when you, because we have this winner-takes-all media commentary where people then say, oh, well, the Australian people rejected Labor at the last election. Well, actually, a little, you know, less than half of the Australian people rejected it. Actually, more Australians voted for the for Labor and the Greens than voted for the coalition. You know, so yep. we, ha- we have to not get too depressed about thinking that Australia has has given up on 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 sort of progressive political goals and given up on try on really tackling c- climate change as a serious, really serious issue. Mm. Well, it's certainly something that, you know, I've been reflecting on when reading this book is looking at the current strategies, political strategies and politicians, and you do have a chapter on Scott Morrison's Quiet Australians. And I think a lot of people might wonder to themselves, who are these quiet Australians who vote Liberal National at and voted Liberal National at the last election? And um, how is there such a disconnect in the values of what was put at the last election? Because the policy, the policy platforms at the last election were actually quite different in many ways. They're, they're, they're not so much now, given that Labor's very spooked. So I wonder if we're reflecting on what's happened in 2019 and where Labor and Liberals are right now in terms of not just their policy, which is a bit pretty well empty at the moment on both sides. But um, if we're looking at the way this political strategy, what are your thoughts on um, Labor and Liberal and how they've developed and where they're sitting right now in terms of, you know, this idea of transactional politics and symbolism and capturing certain demographics? Because you have written about it across such a span of time. I wonder what your take is on it now in terms of where we stand, because we are going to be moving to an election next year now, it appears. Yes. Well, look, I think that Labor's loss of the 2019 election was a terrible setback for Australia generally, because what effectively happened was that Labor was treated by the government as if it were the government, and the government just went in and attacked Labor and it put forward nothing of its own. And so we've had now three years of a government which came to power with no policies. Um, it had to, it, it has looked as if it's been doing something because it was hit by the COVID crisis and so it had to respond. But it's been a government that where leadership uh, has been basically missing as far as I can see. You know, every issue that has come up of importance um, is get, has been handballed to somebody else. So, you know, basically the management of COVID was was handballed, much of it to the states. Um, the issue of, of, of women in parliament has was handballed off to various inquiries and I guess, you know, we haven't heard much about it since. Um, Morrison sort of handballed the, the responsibility for leadership on on responding to the to climate change to the National Party room. You know, it's been astonishing. Now, I can understand why Labor is 
pursuing a small strategy at the moment because what what Morrison's core skill is is as a strategic electoral campaigner. I mean, he was the the state leader of the New South Wales Liberal Party, you know, the state manager, you know, sort of uh, secretary, and that seems to me is where his core skill set is is at managing electoral strategy. And and he will just try to run a negative campaign against Labor, I think. And, yeah. and so, um, and if any of Labor's policies look particularly like they're they're hitting the mark in terms of popularity, he'll just pitch them, um, because he doesn't seem to be have any real policies of his own. So, uh, Labor, I think you know I can understand that. I know you know it's disappointing, but. Um, I have this argument with my husband. I mean, he's you know gets exasperated by Labor's lack of courage. But I say, well, they just have to win. You know, they, it's no point in being courageous and losing again to a government which is doing nothing. You know. And the other thing, I would, so my advice, if the Labor Party were to ask Albanese were to ask my advice, because I, he's there. I think he's the weak link in their strategy. He's not particularly disliked, but you know, he doesn't come across with with much sort of presence. He hasn't got much presence. Mm. Uh, but the, the the team is so much more impressive than the Liberal team. So he needs to, you know, Penny Wong and, and Mark Dreyfus and Jim Chalmers, you know, they need to be to be highlighted. So it's it's Mark Dreyfus versus Michaelia Cash, you know, where's there the most plausibility there? Penny Wong and Maurice Payne. You know, I think I think yeah. Labor needs to highlight itself as a team to 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 diffuse a bit of the the doubts about about Albanese because I mean Albanese is not doesn't seem to have the same sort of elicit the same sort of visceral unease that Bill Shorten did. I mean, I didn't mind Bill Shorten, so I've never quite understood what that was about. But in talking around the traps and things, I know a lot of people really didn't didn't like him. But I think now there's, you know, um, Morrison gives off quite a lot of vibes, you know, his sort of aggressive bullying sort of stance that he does towards towards journalists and at press conferences. That's also, I think, pretty unsettling for people um, in a way that, and, and whereas Albanese is pretty bland, really. He doesn't give off anything that unsettling. Mm. And he's not getting cut through. I think even in the last couple of weeks when we've had major blunders on the global stage by Morrison himself, and it has been about personal leadership and responsibility, there was a prime opportunity for Labor to say something that, you know, got airtime. And what did come across was pretty much, yeah, just like whacking someone with a limp lettuce leaf. Like it just was so ineffective and there were so many other alternatives you didn't even need to get outraged but just to actually say something with force and presence and it didn't really seem to come across that way at all and and labor kind of seemed to shy away from putting pressure back on them in any meaningful way and i just felt like you know of all times to be able to say something now would have been the time yes i mean i think one of albanese's problems is he's too wordy mm. um but also, I mean, maybe that wouldn't matter. I mean, Macron got cut through. Yeah, <laughs> that five pretty, words, and it was, but it was pretty devastating. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, you know, 
that if people were having, you know, doubts. I mean, Morrison has got a one-seat majority, you know, like he's not. And as I said, more, more Australians actually didn't vote for the coalition. So it's just the way they're distributed um, in the seats and the yeah. electoral redistribution has gone Labor's way. So, um, and, so you know, not what, all be what, I think, <laughs> what I think will be, um, we, we have to wait and see, is in some of the seats where there are these voices campaigns running, mm. um, like, for example, in Higgins, where there's a chance of a, an independent candidate. It will depend on whether they can get a good high-profile candidate. I think um, somebody like, like um, you know, like Helen Haynes has been able to or Zoe Stegall, you know, that... Um, that 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 if they could get a really good high profile candidate in Higgins, I think you know that 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 could be won by an independent. Now that independent may not ne necessarily support a, a Labor government, but you know um, it, if there's enough of those and there's a minority and the possibility of a minority government, um, I mean I quite like minority governments. I have to say because I think they they force compromise and I think compromise is what leads to good stable politics stable policies and it, it would it would dilute the really toxic partisanship that I think has been meaning one of the reasons we haven't had any sort of policy movement forward I mean for example just even on negative gearing there was a time when the when the coalition was looking at some changes to the negative gearing legislation and then once labor took it up they dropped it because it became a point of difference you know yeah yeah. So, and I think that's that's Morrison's mindset. Mm. Well, I hope people can read your book because you do talk about minority government and Alfred Deakin in the first chapter on prime ministers. So there's a lot in there to digest and to think about. And you just go to show and prove that history is so highly relevant to all of us all the time. Uh, no matter what era we're in, there's something we can learn and um, reflect on. So I really appreciate your time today, Judith, and uh, congratulations on all of your work that's been done across the decades and all the work that's still to come. It's uh, really valuable to the public discussion and I appreciate you putting yourself out there and your ideas uh, for our benefit. Well, thank you very much, Amy, for having me in for such a, a, a thoughtful discussion. That's my absolute pleasure. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.